It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. We made it through 2020. The S&P 500 rallied to close the year at a record high. Meanwhile, New York and California end the year shattering records on the coronavirus. A lot to get through. Wendy Benjaminson is going to break down what's happening for us at the White House. And that's where we begin. We've got Sound On the floor from Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on this New Year's Eve day. The Senate Minority Leader responding to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's claim that Democrats are focused on $2,000 stimulus checks and are undoing the other two of President Trump's concerns. Take a listen. Just to prove it, let me make this offer to the Republican majority. We're willing to vote on the other issues that President Trump mentioned. All the issues the Republican leader says must be addressed as so long as we vote on them separately. Leader McConnell had this to say. Borrowing from our grandkids to do socialism for rich people is a terrible way to get help to families who actually need it. Joining us now is Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg Politics Editor. Wendy, Happy New Year's Eve. It looks like the $2,000 stimulus check is not going to happen this year. It does look like that. And Happy New Year because... Well, Thank I you. don't want to say it couldn't be worse. I don't want to say that. I didn't just say that. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Wendy, it's just us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a $2,000 stimulus check's not happening. It's a, it's a done deal. Looks like it's gonna, if it is going to happen, it's going to have to happen in the Biden administration. That's right. That's right. Mitch McConnell has arranged it um, pretty neatly so that, um, that they're not going to happen. I mean, I don't. I can't get into Mitch McConnell's brain, but I have a feeling that he is deeply irritated with Donald Trump for, um, you know, for not signing or for signing the bill, but then pushing them for the $2,000 stimulus checks, which, of course, played into the Democrats' hands and left him with a big mess to deal with right at the end of the year. And so I think that's one of the motivations behind linking it to election fraud and the other things that Donald Trump wanted, which turned it into a poison pill. All right. Meanwhile, we head on down to Georgia, where Senator David Perdue is quarantining after exposure to COVID-19. Not exactly how he was planning to spend his New Year's Eve uh, in the final lead up to the campaign election. 
Right. I mean, it's a lot more than New Year's Eve, too. He has yeah. Trump is going down there for a rally on Monday night. He had a big election night planned on Tuesday. I don't think quarantine means, you know, one or two days down and then he's back on the trail. So he's down for the count now. He just has to hope it all turns out. And then if all that wasn't enough, President Trump actually left the Lago, the Lago, as they call it, and returned <laughs> to the White House. And we don't know why. Why? So what are we hearing? I don't know why he returned. Only, I guess, to I, – I don't know. There's There are no events planned. Uh, maybe he wanted to be here for the uh, – who knows for what. Um, you know, he'll, he's going back to Georgia on Monday night. Then, of course, on Wednesday is the certification of the election, which I think he wants to be in town for. But why he came back early, I don't know. Well, Unless got... He didn't like the decor. Remember, we saw some well, stories I... about him being upset about the renovations. I'm going to not take the bait there, and I'm going to stay in my lane, but I will tell you, because now I'm, I'm going to nibble at the bait. Can, can I nibble Christine Barada, our executive producer, on New Year's Eve? Can I sort of take the bait and just say, Christine and my producer in my ear just said, yes, take the bait. Kev, take the bait. It's New Year's Eve. Wendy Benjaminson threw you a line. Here's what I'll say. This year, I have really evolved in my home decor as I have remodeled my home along with many other individuals. And when I say remodeled, I mean just got rid of a lot of stuff. Right, Wendy? Did you do that this year? Well, sort of, yes, I did, actually. I'm, I'm downsizing as I'm becoming an empty nester. So, Aww. yeah, there's a lot of stuff out on the curb. Well, here, uh, speaking of moving, President Trump is going to be moving out of the White House. Let's take a listen to what President Trump had to say in a Twitter video. Here he is. Over and over again, we were told it would be impossible to deliver a vaccine by the end of the year. All of the experts said, absolutely unthinkable. Trump is exaggerating. It can't happen. And we did it. And yet here we are. And the question that everyone that I talk to in the Republican Party is trying to answer is what happens to President Trump? Who inherits his uh, political apparatus? What does he want to do? What will he do? Do I mean, the, there are so many unknowns surrounding President Trump right now, Wendy. There are so many unknowns, Kevin. You're absolutely right. And I think that if, if the past is prologue, then I think President Trump is going to keep it a secret for a very long time what he's going to do, which will keep fundraising frozen. It will keep his apparatus frozen. People like Nikki Haley and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Chris Christie and all these people who want to get started on 2024, because if you don't think the next election doesn't start on January 21st, you're wrong. Um, so all of those people want to start fundraising, want to start becoming players and bigger players in the party. And if Donald Trump is dangling out there that he might run or one of his children might run in 2024, then nothing really else can happen. And if we know Donald Trump now, we know he's going to want to keep that dangling for as long as possible. Wendy, I don't even think it starts January 21st. I oh, think no, it's, it's already started. I think, it's, but, I think it yeah. starts January 6th. What do we know about how 2024 is impacting the actions of the likes of Senator Josh Hawley, for example? Well, absolutely. That's I think that's why Josh Hawley, who is a graduate of Yale Law School, I read somewhere, is, is challenging the election results. And now he's got 140 House members who are challenging the election results. And this shows that whether Donald Trump is in Washington or Mar-a-Lago or Fifth Avenue or wherever it is, 
he eventually hangs his hat, he is still a factor in the Republican Party. They are acting because they want to keep those 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump in November on their side. And so they still have to seem loyal to Donald Trump. And that sort of messes up Biden's plan for everyone to wake up from the fever of the last four years, as he called it, and suddenly want to work with him. The fever hasn't broken yet. Let, let me uh, even go one step beyond that. And what challenges are presented for Vice President Mike Pence for January 6th? That's going to be a rough day for Mike Pence, I, I got to <laughs> tell you. I mean, he's going to sit there and gavel in Joe Biden as the president-elect, or as, as yes, as the president-elect of the United States. That's the end. The last action of the 2020 election is Wednesday when he does that. And then essentially he's got to go back to the office and face the boss, who is not going to be happy with this. But the facts remain that President-elect Joe Biden has more electoral votes than Donald Trump, and he is the president-elect. The thing is that Pence is only working for Donald Trump for another three weeks, so maybe it won't be so bad. Well, beyond that, though, what leverage does Mike Pence have against President Trump. I mean, the politics of this, it's Shakespearean, if you will. And I say that, candidly, I was never much of a Shakespeare kind of guy. I'm much more of an American literature type of person. I really like Fitzgerald. I really like Hemingway. I love Robert Frost. But I mean, but seriously, the road less traveled for Vice President Mike Pence would be to come out and say something in an inevitable, in an inevitable Huh, book or some type of, of new declaration because the working assumption is Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, both of whom have spent an incredible amount of time uh, working uh, for the current president and whom Republicans deeply trust and who their record on, oh, I don't know, U.S. Israeli relations is incredibly strong, that they are going to come out and run for president in 2024. In 30 seconds, what should their New Year's resolution be? Their New Year's resolution should be to help Donald Trump see that his political career is over and that his his best legacy would be to hand the baton to any other Republican so that the country can begin, you know, to move on from this era and let someone else run for president. See, I don't know if the, I just feel like that's not going to happen. I feel like it's not going to happen. <laughs> Oh my gosh, why do I feel like it's Anderson Cooper and when he had all those people on, remember that show they used to do where they were on the cruise and it was just like you couldn't look away? Remember when Anderson Cooper hosted the mole, Wendy? Yes, I do. I thought I had to get out of this segment about 30 seconds ago. I still have two minutes. So this segment has gone incredibly well on New Year's Eve. Uh, what else is on your radar? What else is on your radar? And my well, Christine it's, saying it's I'm off Georgia track. Georgia election. It's, this is just, it is fascinating. You have, there are two Senate seats open and they are running as if they are, they're, they're running as a package deal. Warnock and Ossoff are sometimes campaigning together, just like Purdue and Leffler are some David Purdue and Kelly Leffler are, are sometimes running together, appearing together, but they're all running. They have the same messages. Um, David Purdue and Kelly Leffler, the incumbent Republicans, are saying that 
Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, the two Democratic challengers, are socialists and radicals, and they're going to turn Georgia and the rest of the country over to Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and they're just terrible people. Meanwhile, the Democrats are saying that Purdue and Leffler are crooks who don't care about Georgians, who don't have jobs, who have the virus, who are having a terrible year, and that they, in fact, or they believe, they claim that those two sold their sold stocks and companies that were going to, um, you know, plummet uh, when the when the pandemic hit. So it's it is just a fascinating race, and even though it's a local Georgia Senate race, it it impacts who controls the Senate and how Biden's first term will go. So it is an incredibly important race and a really fun one to watch. All right, for real, what's your New Year's resolution? Wendy, what? I, there was some what's what's your New Year's but... what's your New Year's resolution? Oh, it's I still got to lose that baby weight. <laughs> that should not be your resolution. <laughs> that should not be your resolution. To get out of the house? How about that one? What's yours? Mine is to have more fun next year. I want to have fun oh, good. next year. Well, I re- let's get vaccinated. Let's get out of the house and let's go have. Some I fun. can still have fun even while we're waiting for that. That's how I feel. I want to laugh more. Wendy Benjaminson, truly my friend. Happy, happy New Year's. And thanks for doing this for me on New Year's Eve. You made me laugh. I was having fun. See, I've already started. I'm Kevin. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Resolution. I always think about it this time of the year. What should my resolution be? My New Year's resolution. I don't know. I'm going to ask Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist and the Bahamas chief Bahamas correspondent. He's on a beach in Key Largo. I don't even know. Montego. Uh, Kev, how's the Bahamas? He's over at HG Uh, Creative Media, which nowadays his office is on a beach in Bahamas. How are the Bahamas? uh, You can work from anywhere, Kev. That's one of the beauties of... of, uh, Can you, Christine Barada? Can I work from anywhere? I'm chatty today. Go ahead, Kev. <laughs> uh, are we talking about what your resolution should be? No, 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 no. How's the Bahamas? You're on vacation in the Bahamas. I am. I'm down here uh, with some wonderful friends, uh, ringing in the new year. Um, down here, it's just the weather's been beautiful, and it's uh, it's a perfect evening. 
Uh, Interesting. Senate, All right. What uh, should the over, Democratic over parties? Now. What should the Democratic Party's New Year's resolution be? I think to take a real assessment as to what happened in, in 2020. I mean, we were obviously successful on the presidential level, a huge turnout for Joe Biden. Uh, but as we're seeing in, in Georgia right now, you know, John Ossoff uh, was about 100,000 votes behind where Joe Biden was. We really got decimated in a lot of these key districts uh, that were holds from just two years ago. So I think the Democrats really need to take a, a, a strong look at ourselves running in, in two years. You know, I think one of the, the interesting stories coming out of 2020 was the successful uh, number of Republican women elected to Congress. Uh, that it will be formidable for us taking them on just two years from now. I think we'll, we'll defeat a number of them. Um, but I, I think there are some important lessons we need to learn from this election cycle, uh, you know, not just electing Joe Biden, but, but down, down our ranks. There are many polls that suggest that the president's unfounded claims that uh, of voter fraud, but the but the larger issue that there needs to be some type of investigation into the electoral college process as well as into election security. That's resonating, and if it wasn't resonating, Leader McConnell wouldn't have suggested that there be some type of investigations into or conversation about it in the upper chamber. Is it a mistake for the Democratic Party to just completely write off Trump supporters and Trump voters, many of whom are, as you and I have talked about all throughout the year, swing voters? Yeah, it's a good question, Kev. I mean, we do so at our own peril. When you when polling shows, and, and Bloomer's uh, got a n- number of polls out there about this, that the majority of Republicans think this was a fraudulent election, that is a terrible thing for democracy. That is not a good thing. Uh, that a, a number of folks will look at January 20th and the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president as somehow being illegitimate because of what Donald Trump has been doing in the last two months and even leading up to the election. You know, claims of, uh, of fraud going on even before the first vote was counted um, uh, is, is very problematic. So what Democrats need to do, I think, is elevate voices that we're seeing with Republican attorneys general on the state level, Republican governors of states like of Georgia and Arizona that have certified the elections, that have said that there's no fraud. We can't have Democratic voices just being the sole uh, voices out there. We need to elevate those voices as well and really celebrate the courage of a number of Republicans that are willing to now buck the trend against Donald Trump and say that this was not a fraudulent election. When does President-elect Joe Biden have to say whether or not he will seek a second term? When should he come forward with that, Kev? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if he does, he's already out of the gate, a lame duck. So, uh, you know, in conversations with Joe Biden, uh, in media interviews with Dr. Joe Biden, um, uh, you know, they, they have not suggested their future plans beyond 2024. And I think that's a little bit premature because, again, he doesn't want to handicap himself. I'm going to respectfully gate. disagree with my with my colleague uh, uh, and my friend Kevin Walling, a Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. In the sense that you said it's premature, well, the, the Republicans are already starting starting their jockeying for 2024. So if that's an unknown variable, it not only locks fundraising and the party apparatus for Democrats, but it creates a vacuum where he, it's a question that he's going to have to answer at some point. 
You know what I mean? That becomes. Oh, he's, he's absolutely that, yeah. going to have to answer. It's a good and point the party there. will he's grow frustrated. Good. The party will grow frustrated with him, and, and and potential candidates will grow frustrated with him unless he deci- decisively answers that question. And for someone like Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, it's a question. For Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, the governors, you know, it goes on and on. And so I'm curious, from your analytical perspective, when do you think that question, is it a couple of months? Is it a year? When does that question become something that he has to answer? I think it it seriously becomes a question for him to answer after the midterms in 2022. That's when, uh, you know, uh, any kind of potential presidential candidate would start to really discern, put together a team, um, you know, in terms of the operations behind launching a presidential bid. I think he owes the party that. He owes uh, whoever might consider running that. Similar to Donald Trump. I mean, you're seeing the same dynamics play out now where he's very bullish yeah. on running in 2024. Totally. Um, and that's going to hold back a lot of people on, on the Republican side, too. But I want to focus on, and I, and I get it, and, we spe- and, and Kev, you know, you and I talk about politics all day, every day, but I want to stay focused because you know the, the Democratic Party and, the, and the, the structure of it better than anyone. But folks, this is incredibly important because what Kevin Walling is, our, is, is clearly outlining here is a, a, a path forward in terms of the discussion. So right now, the working assumption, and it's an assumption, keyword, an assumption, and we all remember what Mr. Kevin, Mr. Kevin, what Mr. Nicholas Cerulli, my dad, back in, in Delco, says about assumptions. And I can't say it on this radio program <laughs> on New Year's Eve, okay? But it makes a fool out of you and me. But the working assumption is that Republicans are well positioned to make gains in the House of Representatives. Walling just told us that right off the bat. So let's spin this forward. If the pressure is mounting on a Joe Biden for whether or not he should run again for a second term around the midterms and Republicans flip the House of Representatives, progressives are going to say, okay, well, that happened because he's not being progressive enough. And centrists are going to say, well, it happened because he was beholden to to progressives. That calculation is going to be fascinating to watch that play out, Kevin Walling. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, and we're already seeing that play out in terms of who speaks for the Democratic Party. And a lot can be um, uh, thought through in terms of the shellacking Democrats on, especially in Congress, where you're seeing those dynamics play out with the far to the left of my party that said we were not progressive enough. We were not out there uh, championing those progressive causes enough. And you're seeing, uh, you know, more moderate elements in my party that said, you know, we got a shellacking because defund the police. Uh, was hung around our, our heads in every single race that we, we ran. And, and the president-elect spoke to that in terms of just how effective Republicans were. So it will be a tug of, uh, at war, I think, in terms of uh, which side of my party wins out. I am bullish, though, if you look at some of the races in the Senate, at least in 2022, we've got a pretty good map in terms of our ability to expand, whether it be in, in yeah. North Carolina, other places, where the, in Pennsylvania, your home state, Kev, um, in terms of some pickup I miss it. Um, that are at play as well. So, uh, so I'm a bit bullish that we might actually expand with the vaccine, with our economy roaring back uh, under President Biden. The timing of that could be actually good to increase our, our, our ranks in, in Congress. Kev, what's your New Year's resolution? New Year's resolution is to work out as much as you work out, Kev, so I can look <laughs> just like you. I don't know what to say. Uh, Kevin Walling, Father Martin's going to join me at the end of this program, so... Uh, I'll tell him that you said hi. Kevin Walling is a Democratic strategist at HT Creative Media. Are you surfing while you're in the Bahamas? I've never been to the Bahamas. 
You got to come on down. You got. I was just on Fox News live from the Bahamas just two hours ago on Dana Farina's show. Oh, Dana. Da- you know what? So you can. So I, listen, if I can be a Bahamas correspondent, stranger things have happened. Kevin Walling, Happy New Year, Democratic strategist at HD Creek. There it is, Kev. They did this for you, buddy. The Beach Boys on Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg, sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Happy New Year! No $2,000 stimulus checks. Plus, President Trump returns to the White House for Mar-a-Lago. And Republican Senator David Perdue is quarantining ahead of the runoff. Later on in the program, a special conversation on faith and politics with Father James Martin. That will be in the next half hour. But we begin tonight with the big story which is $2,000 stimulus checks looking like they are going to stay in 2020. We have sound on this particular topic coming from Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who spoke earlier today on this New Year's Eve on the Senate floor. He was responding to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's claim that Democrats are focused on $2,000 stimulus checks and are dodging the other two of President Trump's concerns, big tech accountability and election reform. Here he is. Just to prove it, let me make this offer to the Republican majority. We're willing to vote on the other issues that President Trump mentioned, all the issues the Republican leader says must be addressed, as so long as we vote on them separately. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell responded with this. Borrowing from our grandkids to do socialism for rich people is a terrible way to get help to families who actually need it. Francesca Chambers is a White House correspondent for McClatchy News. Anna Edgerton is a Bloomberg Politics editor. Anna, the drama continued on New Year's Eve. Yes, there's always drama in the U.S. Congress. Um, you know, this was an interesting back and forth between McConnell and Schumer. It was kind of some of what we've heard before, but you see how just how dug in uh, both sides are on this position. 
And meanwhile, Francesca Chambers, White House correspondent for McClatchy News, it would appear that on the issue of $2,000 stimulus checks, lawmakers in the Republican Party have been frustrated that it's if they support $2,000 stimulus checks, they don't care about the $27 trillion debt. Is there room for a moderate position here and to move beyond the either-or scenario? Well, that's the position that Mitch McConnell has tried to take on this issue, Kevin. He has said that he would be at least in support of the checks if they were targeted to people who didn't have jobs or had some sort of income loss in the 2020 year. And that's the other position that Republicans could take if they wanted to in order to try and marry what President Trump is demanding and what they might feel comfortable with as fiscal conservatives. Meanwhile, the other big issue, of course, is the first time that Congress has ever overridden a presidential veto. And I'm, of course, referring to the Defense Authorization Act. Francesca, what's the reaction been on what was a largely expected mood move for Congress to override this veto from the White House? The president has made it quite clear that this is something he clearly wanted to do before he left office, right? Uh, despite the fact that he has refused, Kevin, to acknowledge that, that uh, Joe Biden has won the election, him picking this battle at this point shows that he knows it could be one of his last opportunities to try and take this fight to big tech that really he has made an issue with uh, in his White House over, you know, really the past year for, for him. Especially on the issue of Section 230 and repealing parts of Section 230, Anna, give us an explainer and a primer for people who are coming to Section 230 a little bit new. And it's, of course, been a thread that we've followed on this program for the past year. But give us another primer on this New Year's Eve of Section 230, Anna Edgerton. Yeah, this is uh, part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. So admittedly, a little bit outdated, you know, it was written to apply to very different technology than what we have now. But this is a provision that protects media companies from liability for user-generated content on their platforms. So, you know, if a user tweets or posts something on Facebook, the company can't be held responsible for that. So President Trump wants to uh, repeal this provision, which, of course, would be terrible for the media companies, but also would not be very good for him because if media companies have to be responsible for what's on their platforms, they're not going to let a lot of the president's tweets stand. You know, they're not going to let uh, conservatives and Republicans and even Democrats, you know, whoever post as much material with as much uh, freedom to just say whatever on these platforms. So, so and the, the reason this becomes a, a fascinatingly uh, complex issue very quickly is when a social media platform, when there are terrorists on a social media platform who are posting hate speech or trying to organize or posting videos of attacks. And we've seen this play out. I don't, I mean, unfortunately it's too many times. And uh, right now, uh, there are systems that are in place uh, for for big tech companies, but uh, there are they're protected by Section 230, and so it's a it's an unfortunately, as Anna just uh, really crystal clear explains, a very complex issue, very very fast. Francesca Chambers, uh, January 6th, also on my radar. Coming up, we're going to do a whole segment on Georgia, but January 6th, something that I've got uh, highlighted on my calendar, as that of course is the date when the uh, Congress is going to ratify the Electoral College vote. How have Republicans in the Senate, most notably people like Senators Lindsey Graham and Josh Hawley, been planning for January 6th? So 
Josh Hawley, the big one this week, saying that he will contest at least one of the states. Uh, and you basically just need him, one senator, and then a member of the House uh, to be able to contest this. We know that there are there are multiple Republicans in the House. But the key thing here, Kevin, is that it would take uh, the majority of the House and the Senate voting for this, for this to be something that could happen in the House is run by Democrats. So that's just certainly not going to happen. So making a lot of noise on this issue, and President Trump has been quite supportive of this, of course course, you know, him tweeting that uh, also he'll see you in D.C. on January 6th. Last night, there will be a big rally of his supporters that it sounds like uh, he might stop by and see as well. However, in the end, as you said, the results of the Electoral College will be ratified. Democrats and uh, have the votes on this. Republicans do not. Why did he come back from Mar-a-Lago, Francesca? Oh, man, Kevin, that's one that we're all trying to really get some insight into. It's really not clear why the president came back a day early, just a day earlier than he was going to already, Kevin. Uh, He was supposed to return on January 1st, which, by the way, he already had a shorter trip than he usually does. He went down quite late, and you could say potentially that was because of the stimulus bill. Although some people who are close to the president have told me, Kevin, that the president does know that he's going to be leaving. He has plenty of time to spend outside of the White House after he leaves office. And so maybe he's just trying to spend as much time as he can at the White House working on things like uh, this election challenge. All right, coming up, Francesca and Anna are going to answer what the two political parties' New Year's resolutions should be. So they're going to be thinking about that. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And we are also going to talk about the Georgia runoff election happening on January 5th. A breaking news headline just crossing the Bloomberg terminal within the last hour or so. Republican Senator David Perdue, who faces a runoff election on January 5th, says that he will quarantine after coming into close contact with someone on the campaign who tested positive for COVID-19. Perdue and his wife tested negative on Thursday, according to a statement. And President Trump plans to hold a rally in Georgia on Monday to campaign for Perdue and fellow Republican incumbent Kelly Leffler. Again, Senator David Perdue, who's up for re-election, is now going to be quarantining as a result of getting into close contact with COVID-19. Much more coming up next on Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Joining me on this special New Year's Eve. Is it a special? Every New Year's Eve is special, right? I don't know. It feels different this year, but we made it. Francesca Chambers, we made it. White House correspondent from McClatchy, Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg Politics Editor. We made it, Anna. Yeah, I'd say this year is, is special. <laughs> special it, it's a, is one it, word. It's a word for it. What should uh, I always think about resolution? You know, resolution. We always think of trite New Year's resolutions like, oh, I'm going to try to drink less coffee. I always fail. <laughs> but resolution, I think, is a, I, I've been thinking a lot about that word resolution. What does it mean, whole? 
holistic? I don't know. I got to read more about that word. What should the political party's New Year's resolutions be? Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Anna Edgerton. Um, that's an excellent question. Thank you. I appreciate uh, it. About it. I've been thinking about it. Um, you know, I think for Republicans, they need to not be defined by Trump. You know, going forward, they need to think about how to be a party that makes the United States, uh, you know, more unified, working for everyone. Just kind of think about how to take the country forward in a more unified way. Um, and for Democrats. I'm not sure how this is going to sound, but I think a good uh, resolution for them would be to forgive, you know, to not, uh, you know, if a Republican supported Trump, don't hold that against them. Try to, you know, move forward and try to, um, you know, kind of get over the past four years of acrimony and uh, and hate that we've seen um, kind of directed at, at both political parties. Francesca, what should the resolutions be for each of the parties? Well, by the way, Kevin, I, I don't know who's coming up with resolutions to to drink less coffee. In fact, I feel like mine's always to drink more coffee. Get I up drink, earlier, wait, drink I have to coffee, say this. I done. have literally, when I was at Politico years ago now, I'm getting up there, and I, <laughs> <laughs> I know I would drink like eight cups of coffee a day, and I'm not even kidding. And then at the time, I was working weekends at a coffee shop in Arlington, Java Shack, shut down this year. Tragic, tragic news for me, because it's it was really one of my favorite part-time jobs, but I would, I become such a coffee snob because of I was a part-time barista while I was working at Politico and as a result anyone who knows me knows I go to the popular Philadelphia convenience store chain for coffee about like multiple times a day to keep <laughs> this but I don't like it I got to drink more water I really got to drink more water Francesca I, I used to wear okay. drinking my coffee as a badge of honor and now I think it's gonna it, it's I gotta get I gotta get more water go ahead enough about me who cares okay, what are the parties? I was I was going to say that's fair, and it is true. Every year, my New Year's resolution is to drink the 8 to 10 cups of water that they say you're supposed to, and I, I never get it done. But 2021 is definitely going to be the year. I can right, feel me it. and you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> As for the political parties and what they should do, look, Republicans, you know, I think that Anna had a great point about moving beyond Trump, but to, just to take that even a step further, they did not win the presidential election. They, they may not have won the Senate, and they certainly did win control of the House of Representatives. So they have to come up with a way to have a winning coalition again. Uh, the fact that they, you know, really don't have the, the majority, at least currently at this moment, because we don't know what's going to happen in Georgia, in, in any of the three chambers, really has to be a wake-up call for any political party when that happens, and they have to, to figure out how, how to move forward and how to win again. So that would be the thing for Republicans. As far as Democrats go, they really have the opposite problem. They're almost the cat that caught the canary, which is now they have to figure out what to do with that power now that they have the House of Representatives, possibly the Senate, and also the presidency. When Barack Obama had uh, three chambers, you know, he was able to get health care passed. That was his big thing. So if, if they can only choose one potentially big thing, especially in the middle of COVID, which in and of itself is at the forefront of our minds and the big thing, what will that be? And they're really going to have to make a decision pretty quickly in Joe Biden's administration. And he said that he wants to pursue big things like infrastructure and transportation. And he wants to do things related to uh, communities of color and education and all of those things. But realistically, there's only so much that you can get done in one year. And I say one year because, of course, in another year, they'll have to start thinking again about running for 2022.
When does President-elect Joe Biden have to answer the question, Francesca, of if he will seek a second term? Everyone, rightfully so, has been talking about what President Trump's plans are, but when does when does President-elect Biden have to decide whether or not to run again and, and unfreeze the party? Well, certainly what we've seen, at least in past elections, right, is that about, you know, the beginning of, it was like, I think it was the beginning of 2015, if you want to go back to that election, when people start making the rounds at some of these cattle call events when they're planning to, to run for president in 2016. So uh, this year, right, this was a little bit of an odd cycle, so I don't know that to make a direct comparison to everything this year because of COVID. But if we just use that example, then surely uh, he would have to make some sort of a decision no later than the very beginning of 2023. Um, but I would say before that, Kevin, there's a lot of people in the Democratic Party who are obviously going to be very interested in this, least to say his own sitting vice president who's going to want to know as early as possible. Anna, same question. Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. You know, it, it, we're kind of obviously in, in a perpetual election cycle. So depending on what happens in 2022 with the midterms, we're going to see what position Democrats are in to take advantage of the entire Biden administration. You know, if they lose the House and haven't won the Senate or lose the Senate at the time, then President Biden, a Democrat, could be facing a Republican House and a Republican Senate, and they could force him to take some really uncomfortable positions in terms of, you know, what he vetoes or what he allows to become law. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the first half of his term and the second half of his term shape up. And I wonder if that could influence his decision and whether or not he decides to run for a second term. It's I can't even stress just how, and then I know if you're listening, you're probably like, why are you talking about 2024 and whatnot? But I, I, I think it's on New Year's Eve an appropriate conversation to have simply because if, if you buy into the notion that Republicans are set to make some gains in the 2022 midterms, that would present a, a conversation in the Democratic Party about whether or not the current administration was too progressive or not progressive enough, if you historically look at the conversations that are had. And as Francesca and Anna point out, if if already we're seeing Senator Josh Hawley, Lindsey Graham, and Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, begin to lay down some markers uh, this week for 2024, the Democrats are going to want to know whether or not they're going to be putting up an incumbent or if they're going to have an open primary. All things to keep in mind, just putting it out there. Again, I know he hasn't been sworn in yet. I know we have a lot to get through next week, but it's New Year's Eve. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. This is Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, wishing you and your families a safe, happy, and healthy New Year. Joining me now for my favorite part of the program, What's Next?, is Francesca Chambers, White House correspondent for McClatchy, and Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg Politics Editor. Francesca, I'm going to kick things off for what's next. And uh, maybe this is something that not a lot of people are talking about, but Georgia. <laughs> We're all talking about Georgia. <laughs> and Francesca, tell us something we don't know. As Senator David Perdue, who's up for re-election, obviously, he is now quarantining ahead of the runoff in the Georgia election. Give us the state of play on, on Georgia. 
right. So the state of play is that Republicans are very concerned right now about turnout in, um, in early, early voting and turnout so far. Right. So uh, up until this point, people could vote through today. Uh, and in the northwest part of Georgia, which is a heavily Republican area, they had been seeing a lag in voting for what they felt that they needed to see. So that's the area that President Donald Trump will be traveling to next week on the eve of the runoff election to try and get a big election day turnout for Republicans. Meanwhile, Democrats, they're actually feeling pretty good about their numbers, as good as you can feel when it's the first time, by the way, that you won the state in a presidential election uh, since 1992. They are feeling pretty good, though, about their early voting numbers. African-Americans are turning out in larger numbers in this runoff election, Kevin, than had in the general election in November, which Democrats believe bodes well for them. Let's take a listen to what Senator Kelly Loeffler had to say on the campaign trail with just five days until the Georgia runoff. Here she is. We need you to call your friends, your families, text, call. In fact, my friend Marsha Blackburn, great Tennessee senator, she says five calls a day will keep the liberals away. (laughs) Oh, jokes. Anna Edgerton, uh, you know, I, I mean, it looks like, I mean, assess it for us. Who's up and who's down in Georgia? It, you know, it's really hard to tell. You know, traditionally, the special elections have uh, have favored Republicans, especially in this conservative state. But there's a lot of energy on the Democratic side, and you can see that there's you know the early turnout has been really good for Democrats. It's a tough thing for Republicans because they've been saying that elections that their voters should question the security of U.S. elections. So it's kind of an uncomfortable position for Republicans, you know, from Donald Trump down to the. Senate candidates and local leaders to say elections are rigged, but you should vote in this election. So, you know, they could have hurt their own turnout by casting doubt on the process. So meanwhile, I mean, that's what's on, obviously, a lot of people's radar is Georgia. But but meanwhile, I mean, we're, we're hearing from officials on the ground, Francesca, that we might actually not have the result uh, on January 5th and that the early voting could make it a little bit longer for when we get the result. When do we know when we should have a result by? You're right, Kevin, that they have, they'll have a large number of early votes, uh, vote by mail, that they will need to count. And certainly there's a lot of eyes on Georgia, given uh, the challenges that Republicans, particularly President Trump's camp, had made after the last election. And it's expected to be very narrow. And both sides, sources on both sides have told me that, that they expect it to be a razor-thin margin of victory. So you could definitely situ- see situations where one side or the other requests a recount, depending on just how close it is, Kevin. All right. That's what's on. That's what I'm looking out for. That's what's next for me is, of course, the Georgia runoff election. And we have special continuing coverage of that uh, on the night of. And I believe Anna's going to be working with us on that for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Uh, David Weston returns from vacation next week. And so does Tom Keene. Tom, I missed you this week. If you're listening, Tom Keene. I always listen to Tom, uh, my colleague, my mentor here at Bloomberg. He's coming back from vacation next week as well. OK, Anna Edgerton, what's next? I am looking at the first day of the 117th Congress. That's going to be on Sunday, and that will be the day of the speakership election in the House. I feel pretty good about Nancy Pelosi's chances. You know, she, uh, of course, is a good vote counter, so she knows where her votes are and would uh, be working to shore up any weaknesses uh, on her 
her majority, which is has a thinner major, uh, thinner margin than it did in the 116th Congress. So um, first day of the 117th Congress, big thing I'm looking out for this weekend. And what happens in in the in the lame lame duck? I mean, it's it's this remarkable geopolitical dynamic that emerges, Anna, uh, about you know you've got an outgoing president and a first new Congress. Yeah, it's been a struggle all four years to guess what the president's going to do. But with the new Congress in place, um, you know, he could kind of withdraw to himself or he could kind of set some fires on the way out. So, you know, we'll definitely be watching to see um, the president's next moves. And to your point about Georgia and the uncertainty about the results there, we expect a lot of litigation on this. So Mm. it could be you know, days or weeks before we know who's going to control the Senate. Francesca Chambers, what's next? Well, you know, looking at the COVID-19 vaccine, certainly, Kevin, you know, from a congressional standpoint, there is going to be, there are going to be oversight committee hearings. We can certainly expect on how this vaccine was distributed, who got it, when, where, what, and why. And from the presidential side, you know, Joe Biden will be taking office on January 20th. He's made a really ambitious goal of saying that he plans to administer 100 million doses of the vaccine in his first 100 days. At the same time, he has chastised the current administration for not getting the vaccine out quicker. So what is he going to do differently to meet that, again, very ambitious goal to get the vaccine out to people? That's something we're still waiting for more details on from his transition, and that'll be something to closely watch. Come in here, Anna Edgerton, about just how crucial that marker is going to be for the for the 100 million vaccines. Yeah, the vaccine is kind of what we've pinned our hopes on to reopen the economy. So in order to start the... The, the beginning of the year and especially going into the second quarter, meeting people's expectations for how 2021 should be better than 2020, we really need to get more Americans vaccinated beyond just healthcare professionals. So this is going to be super important for Biden, not just for the health and safety of Americans, but also to get the economy back open. Let's just uh, let's just uh, uh, dive into my Bloomberg terminal for a second and get an update on the coronavirus tracker. The U.S. ended the year with records and milestones. New York State and Florida each hit hard as the coronavirus ravaged across the nation, broke their previous daily records for cases. Texas reported a new high for hospitalizations. California became the third state to pass 25,000 fatalities after New York and Texas. Virginia reported record infections as total fatalities surpassed 5,000. Wow. Uh, you know, and, and coming up next, Father Martin is going to join us. He is going to give us uh, a conversation on faith as well as politics and policy as we close out 2020. But what were the highlights and the lowlights for you each? I'll start with you, Anna. What was a highlight and a low life, uh, a low light in this year from uh, from the news? Um, if I could have my highlight be a personal thing, I had a baby. I know. <laughs> so, I wanted to know if you were going to yeah. say that. Congratulations. Yeah. A beautiful so, baby. Congratulations. Yeah. So highlight was definitely having a baby. And um, low light would just be um, having to be a spectator for some of the, the news year. I know that sounds funny, but while no, I was I out it. on maternity leave, you know, I was watching these uh, protests against uh, racial injustice and all this stuff happening six miles from my house, and I couldn't cover it, which was a complicated space to be in. But, you know, glad to be um, back at it now and excited for what 2021 brings. I got to say, Anna Edgerton is one of my favorite colleagues here. And <laughs> just a total, total boss. And 
just I love getting to work with her every day. So Anna, you know, you know that. Okay, Francesca <laughs> Chambers, a highlight and a low light. Well, I mean, I think for all of us, the low light, the clear low light, Kevin, was COVID nineteen. And I mean, from the perspective of, I, I think you know, especially as a younger person, um, it, it was very, it was very, very hard to see you know people that you know. You're, you're getting it. Um, family, friends catching the virus. Um, some of them, you know, critically ill, and that just creates, I think, uh, um, for society, it's very hard, right? It's a, it's a, it's hard to look forward even, right, to 2021 as we we talk about the highlights even, and we're talking about um, our New Year's resolutions and that kind of an atmosphere when there when it when it has been such just a hard year for so many Americans, and you talk about the spread of COVID and where we still are, and that it's that in some areas, right, it's it. This is something that people are still dealing with, you know, very aggressively. And so um, certainly I think we're all looking forward, right, in 2021 to being able to move beyond that and have um, a healthy and safe year. Um, but if I did have to say that there was, like, some sort of a personal highlight of the year, I actually did uh, finish my first full year at McClatchy News. Congrats. Uh, last, yeah, well in 2020. And so that was uh, that was my personal highlight. That was amazing. Great reporting that you're doing, Francesca, as well. For me, the highlight, this show. Thank you all for listening. Coming up next, Father Martin. This is Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. My next guest, I am so grateful, is my last guest of the year. No pressure. The last guest of the year. I've been really, really wanting to have him on for quite some time, and I'm so thrilled that we were able to make it work. And it's just so fitting that it's New Year's Eve. Uh, and, and he's really emerged as a national voice uh, on uh, Catholicism in the sense of an analytical uh, uh, perspective and where the faith is in America and, and, and how politics and faith are really uh, juxtaposed often in ways that maybe uh, are confusing for people. But I, I'm a huge fan of his books. Uh, his The book that I love, that I think should be required reading for every Catholic prep school in America, is Building a Bridge, How the LGBTQ Community and Catholic Church Can uh, Listen to One Another, uh, and how the church needs to be a little bit more, a lot more accepting uh, of the gay community. He is also the author of Learning to Pray and Jesus, a Pilgrimage. His name is Father James Martin. Father Martin, welcome to the program. Happy New Year to you, my friend. 
Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. And uh, I second your uh, your desire that every Catholic school buy building a bridge. <laughs> Not just teach it, too, and read it. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Uh, we mentioned this a little bit uh, in, in the lead-up to the election, which feels like a decade ago already. But it was... Uh, it, it, it was about the importance of the Catholic vote. And what do we know about the exit polls and how Catholics voted uh, and, and how they are an, an incredibly important voting block uh, in the elections, both not just as a monolithic block, but also amongst various different constituencies? Yeah, I think that's a good point. One of the biggest uh, misconceptions is that they are monolithic, that the Catholics vote exactly how the bishops tell them or Catholics vote exactly a, 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 you know, a certain way. But really, I mean, this sounds might sound really banal, but, uh, you know, Catholics who are Republican vote Republican and Catholics who are Democrat vote Democrat. So that's that's more or less the way it broke down uh, this year. I think uh, President-elect Biden got slightly more of the Catholic vote. But, you know, if you dig down, I think, you know, in terms of Hispanics and whites and blacks, it might have been a little different. But they are not monolithic and they, you know, they vote like everybody else does in terms of, uh, you know, moral issues, but also economic issues as well. Father Martin, let's go broader for a second from a historical perspective. President-elect Joe Biden will only be the second Catholic president in the United States. Talk to us just about, the one, the significance of that, and secondly, uh, I think a lot of people are would be shocked to know that there's only been two Catholic presidents. Well, and it's such a difference because in 1960, remember, John F. Kennedy had to go before a group of Protestant pastors and say that he wouldn't be, you know, ruled by the Pope. I mean, there was such, you know, anti-Catholicism. Catholics, I mean, there is still some anti-Catholicism in this country, but Catholics have been more or less, uh, you know, enculturated into the country. And so I don't think it's as much of a shock for people. But I think what might surprise people is that, you know, because Joe Biden is a mass-going Catholic and he, you know, takes his faith seriously, that doesn't mean, you know, I agree with him on every political thing, um, you know, you're going to see a lot more Catholic culture. I mean, he goes to Mass every Sunday. He talks about hymns that he likes and the sisters that he grew up with. So I think that's going to be the surprise for people. You're going to hear more about Catholic culture than we've heard since at least 1960. And I think even John F. Kennedy uh, downplayed some of that. It's fascinating. And and I can't even stress that enough. I mean, just how, you know, you grow up and, and, and you, you play CYO basketball and, and, and whatnot. And, and, and just to see how that culture is really going to be on uh, full display. And we haven't really talked about political uh, constituencies like Kennedy Catholics, for example, in, in quite some time. Uh, uh, one of our producers on the program, the indefatigable, hardworking Matt Shirley, uh, says, fun fact, Teddy Roosevelt was the only president to not swear to the oath of office on a Bible. Instead, he used a constitution. I didn't know that, Matt. Uh, Father Martin's with us, Father James Martin, uh, an expert in terms of the intersection of politics and faith in uh, America. Uh, and, you know, I was struck by uh, a recent development coming from Pope Francis, which is that he wants to visit Iraq. What do we know about the president? This would likely be his first trip to the Middle East uh, since COVID-19. I mean, how significant of a trip is that going to be, uh, Father Martin? Well, I'm no politician, but I think it's it's the, I believe it's the first papal trip to Iraq. Uh, you know, he has long wanted to reach out to uh, the Muslim community, and obviously, you know, that's an it's an essential part of biblical history, right? I mean, you know, all the things that happened in Iraq and the New Test in the Old Testament, uh, and so I think it also shows that he's you know he's unafraid to to 
to build bridges, I mean, to coin a phrase. And he, again, is reaching out to the Muslim community in a way that uh, I think is totally appropriate. So I, I was delighted. I just hope it comes off, you know, with the COVID. Um, you know, we will see. It's, but, but the significance of that in a, in a time in which uh, around the world, European nations as well as the United States are beginning to question not just uh, the plight of Christians in, in the Middle East, but also other repressed uh, religions uh, around the world. And, and, and what's coming to mind, uh, case in point, is how the Communist Party of China and the actions that they've taken, Father Martin, against uh, religious minorities in, in their country. Uh, how might that begin to shift things with China becoming increasingly in focus? I think that's a very good point. I think you're right that he will, you know, when he's there, inevitably draw attention to the persecuted Christian minorities in the Middle East, which is, uh, you know, again, something that I think people forget about, uh, that, that the Christians who have been driven out from different Middle Eastern countries, you know, over the past couple of years. And uh, so you're right. So it's, it's, not just, it's not just a kind of political statement, but he's also going there, people tend to forget, as a pastor. So he's going there as, as the pastor for, you know, Iraqi Catholics. And so that's another... Um, purpose of 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 a, of a papal visit. As you've emerged as a national voice on these issues, you've been on the uh, political Sunday shows. You've obviously been published in uh, multiple publications uh, and and written numerous books. I mean, what what do you think needs to happen in terms of changing the conversation about faith in America so that it do, it becomes depoliticized uh, and that one party doesn't have a monopoly over or make a, mon, a monopoly argument uh, over faith in this country? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think the larger question is what do, what do we do about, um, you know, sort of depoliticizing everything? And I think the first step is for people to speak respectfully about one another and, you know, for example, not call one another a bad Catholic or a bad Christian and, you know, to give people the benefit of the doubt. But I also think, to your point, you know, there is not one party that, that owns uh, Christianity, right? I mean, <laughs> Jesus was not a Democrat or a Republican, and uh, you know, to be a good Catholic doesn't mean being a Democrat or a Republican. In terms of the Catholic Church, we are much bigger than that and much larger than that. And so I think, unfortunately, there have been so many people that have said that if you're not one party or another, if you don't vote for one person or another, you're not a good Catholic or not a good Christian. And, you know, that's simply false. And we, we have to we have to sort of remove that that stereotype from the public discourse. Historically speaking, if it well, not historically speaking, we're in a very divisive time. Social media is is exacerbating. One could make the argument that those divisions, uh, foreign adversaries, it's been reported by the intelligence community, are uh, capitalizing off of the that. That And in the minute that I have left with you, my final question for you would be, why do you remain hopeful and optimistic defiantly that we can heal from this? Oh, well, because I'm a Christian. I mean, the message of the resurrection is one of hope. I mean, if you think about, uh, if you think about the Christmas message, it is, uh, you know, that God is with us in all of these things. God becomes incarnate in Jesus. If you think about the, the message on the other side of Jesus's earthly life, the resurrection, it's nothing is impossible with God. And so uh, it, it's not just mere optimism and hoping that things go well. It's a, it's a, it's a fundamental belief in, in the power of God to bring about things that are new. And again, we see that both in Christmas and in Easter. Happy New Year, folks. Thank you to Father James Martin. Go out and read the book, Building a Bridge. Read it again. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.